0: Hey there, welcome to Dirt Rich, seasonal conversations on food and farming. I'm Katie Federal, the communications director for the Sustainable Farming Association. And it feels really wild to say, but this is our final episode of season two. And I'm thrilled to be ending the year with this conversation with Megan Blair and Nate Waters. Both are SFA members in different parts of the state. They're growing heirloom apples in orchards and making really great local craft cider. It's really important to both of them to have these great ties with their community and also to be sustainable from like an ecological, economic and social standpoint. And they're both really open about the challenges that they face making craft cider on a small scale with local ingredients. And I think there's a lot of great themes in their conversation that we've heard throughout this year. I know that we'll probably continue to be chewing on. And so I think this is just a really great way to end the year But before we get started, I want to thank you all so much for listening on behalf of myself and Jared. We'll be picking it back up again in 2022 after we take a much-needed winter break. And we're even thinking about trying our hand at some mini series as a part of Season 3. So stay tuned for that. Let's get to it. Megan and Nate, thank you for joining us. Thanks, Katie.
1: Yeah, thanks. Glad to be here.
0: Excellent. Um, Megan, do you just want to start maybe with a bit of telling us about your farm, um, how you got
2: started? Sure. Um, My partner and I operate a farm just outside of Duluth, Minnesota, Um, and it's a a historic dairy farm. We moved to the property about eight years ago, so uh, in about 2013, and at the time, we had were living in Duluth, and we're looking for a little bit larger uh, property uh, because we had a second child on the way. And so we started looking at different properties, and we fell in love with this farm. Uh, it's a 40-acre um, uh, historic dairy farm. hadn't been operated in about uh, probably about 40 years, um, so it was overgrown with a lot of alder. Uh, It has some really nice features, including some nice um, west and south-facing slopes, Uh, and it had a wonderful heirloom orchard on the property, about 25 to 30 trees, Uh, really interesting old University of Minnesota varieties, things like wealthy and beacon, and um, especially chestnut crab, which is a great little apple. Um, and we absolutely loved the place and decided uh, that we were going to be making a transition. And so when we moved out to the farm, we knew right away that we would love to expand the orchard. My partner, Bob, comes from a brewing background. he's uh, had been a professional uh, brewery operator for about the previous 15 or 20 years um, and uh, loved the idea of started, starting to make uh, ciders on the farm, and we did that for about the first three or four years, and then chose the uh, chose the path of investing in a um, in a farm winery, which is a small cider making operation that's located right on our farm. So we went through the uh, condition use permitting that it took and the uh, licensing from the state that it took to be able to make larger batches of cider. Um, by and large, we use our own apples, and then we acquire apples from other farms that are nearby. Uh, to make about somewhere usually between about 600 and 1,000 gallons of cider per year, and we put it in bottles and sell it locally. Um, so we're a true local operation. We always start with our own, our own apples. We're pressing them here on the farm, and we press other people's um, apples as well as a service, and um, and then get our cider out into the community that way. Um, yeah, so that's the sort of in a nutshell what our what our farm operation is. We we also have diverse operations because we're trying to clear the property t- in order to establish additional orchard. We have a, an Icelandic sheep operation that help, they help us they're really land managers that's why we have our sheep um, and they help us to uh, graze the land and condition the soil and um, prepare the soil for uh, the eventual orchard. So we've planted about an, another um, somewhere between two and three thousand additional um, trees. Some of which, the first of which, I think, should be coming online with Apple's next year. So we're really excited about that.
0: Oh my gosh, that growth is so exciting! Jeez, it's fun to have the um, the herd also like kind of on your employee uh, roster there too. <laughs> Absolutely. Oh, and Nate, you are on the opposite end of the state. Why don't you tell us a bit about Keepsake Cidery?
1: Yeah, uh, thanks. Um, we are yeah down in the Cannon River Valley, just about forty five minutes south of the Twin Cities. Um, just outside Northfield in a little town called Bridgewater or Dundas is the other town right next to us. Um, We got here in a kind of a long path. I wanted to, I started as a CSA farmer in uh, Massachusetts and I realized pretty quickly that I wanted to continue farming. I loved farming, but I wanted to grow apples. And so I started building a business plan um, with my wife my wife Tracy and she wanted to live in the country. She's always loved horses and animals and she wanted to be out the country. So we started building this kind of business plan around uh, a lifestyle, living on the farm, uh, growing apples and, um, and we just had to figure out where we wanted to do that. <laughs> so we landed here in Minnesota in the Cannon River uh, Valley. We think it's one of the best places in the world. Um, great soil, uh, great water and great people um and so we uh about a year before two years before we planted only three years before we planted our first tree um i kind of had an epiphany i was gonna have a cidery sorry an orchard and a brewery because i was a brewer uh much like bob uh although bob had a lot more experience than i did <laughs> uh and i was just gonna jump in and start a brewery uh, on a farm with my apple trees and a friend of mine said well why that's stupid why don't you make cider and I I said, well, that's because cider isn't very good. Because um, <laughs> I had only had a uh, certain cider that I won't name that just turned me off to the whole product. Uh, they were super sweet, uh, artificial flavored. Um, it wasn't what I was looking for in a product. And he said, you haven't had cider yet. And so I said, well, I'm open-minded. Sure, pour me another cider. So he poured me a real cider, or a proper cider, as they say in England. And I was floored. I mean, I it's, it was. I hope everybody has this experience in your life where just a whole new you know, culinary world is open to you, a whole new taste world, a whole new experience is opened up to you. Um, and I just just couldn't be stopped. I just, I knew I had to make cider. I had to, to, to forge these two, two plans together. So um, it obviously made a lot more sense now. I was going to have an orchard and make cider. So we, we've picked this spot because we feel like it's a really great plant for cider, but also or sorry, for apples, but also for cider. We think that this is a great community close to the markets that we wanted to be in. Um so yeah, we bought the, the land. Uh it's about 25 acres. Uh, we put about six acres of apples in, which is about 6,000 trees. And they're everything from um uh you know your honey crisps, because you gotta you gotta grow apples for people to eat. Um to, but most of our apples are apples like golden russet and blue Pearmain and chiseled jersey and the aforementioned to make them I love chestnut. We make a single varietal chestnut. Chestnut, um yeah, Bulmers Norman. Northern Spy, Kids Orange Red, these kind of apples. Um, so, yeah, we planned this weird orchard in 2014, and we've been adding here and there and getting it in the right spot and making cider, starting cider in 2014 for commercial reasons. Of course, we made cider before that, but for cider we could sell in 2014. And so, yeah, Tracy and I opened a tasting room here. She runs a tasting room. we got our two kids, Tristan and Fiona, who are helping out a lot. And um, we do have animals. We don't use them as, as smartly as Megan and Bob. We had, we just kind of have horses running around and geese running around and uh cats and we did have sheep for a while, but they, they were a weird sheep called soe sheep, and uh we just needed to find them a home that made better sense. They were always getting out and running around all the neighbors. Um <laughs> yeah. So we have our friends' sheep come in the fall and they uh they they come and um they go through the, the the orchard. Um but we don't own our own sheep. Uh yeah, now we, we, we grow apples and make cider.
0: This is the first time that I've heard about, um, you know, sheep being intentionally used in orchards and both of you have used that like practice. Is that common? Would you say for ciders? Are you just very unique in that sense?
2: I think it's a little bit unique. I, I think it's very practical. Um, there obviously are hurdles with respect to, you know, learning how to become, um, you know, as into animal husbandry and learning about how to, um, you know, handle animals and treat them and, you know, develop relationships with veterinarians and and neighbors who know how to care for sheep as well. So there's some definitely some uphill climbing there. But, you know, when we visited um, the northern region of France several years ago, um, in order to sort of get a better understanding of what some of the older longer term operations, cider operations, and apple growing operations look like, it was, it struck us as, um, incredible, how many of them incorporate animals on their landscape? There was many, many, many um, cider, cideries and uh, orchards that we visited that incorporated specifically cattle on their on their property. Um, our trees are much younger. Um, and more susceptible to being knocked over by large animals. So, uh, and then our our terrain is uh, much rougher. Uh, we haven't um, orcharded on this property for h- hundreds of years. So, uh, in some ways, having sheep, which act a little bit more like goats in some ways, and and can take a rougher uh, a rougher pasture, uh, help. Uh, you know, that made more sense to us than starting to incorporate something like cattle. Um, but we saw that and we, it was very intriguing to us. And it was, it was a need that we needed, right? This was something that we understood as we converted a lot of our, um, property that had already got, it used to be hay fields, but now it's, it had undergone primary succession. We had a real need to being able to manage that vegetation and, and to us, um, bringing on animals on the land made sense to us.
0: Yeah. And that's uh, I understand that they are not only um, helping you manage the land, but you you use you sell like the fiber, too. Right.
2: Right. So I would say that that's not our primary operation. In fact, um, we in general, what we hope to do from a sustainability standpoint, economic sustainability is break even on the um, on the sheep operation. And typically we do. This year was a little harder because hay prices were so high because of the drought. Um, But I would say on a year-to-year basis, we break even or even make a little bit of money. That's not their, again, that's not the sheep's primary purpose is to to make money for our farm. But we do, we are able to sell the specialty product of lamb meat and um, we are trying to work out the uh, marketing outlets for the wool as well. Icelandic wool is absolutely wonderful um, for people like hand hand knitters um, and knitting the knitting population, fiber and fiber felting in general. Um, but that's a that's not a market outlet that we've explored very far. Okay. Well,
0: I will happily be a customer (laughs) after, uh, I studied abroad in Iceland, like in, in college and I have been like hoarding my Icelandic wool yarn that I bought there because it's like, oh, where am I going to get this next? So now I know where I'll get it next. (laughs) Like
2: an absolutely great discussion that we should have. (laughs) Yeah.
0: (laughs) Oh, so, um, you know, our, our whole shtick on dirt rich is like, these are seasonal conversations. So I do got to ask like, What is happening at the cidery right now? Are you still pressing apples? Nate and I, before this, we're just talking about how the tasting room is shutting down for the winter. Let's start with Megan. What are you up to at this point in the year?
2: It's, it feels a bit like the slowest time of year right now, but in reality, what's really going on in our cidery is fascinating. It's the time of year when our cider is fermenting. And that is really, really exciting. We pressed our apples down in the fall. Um, and we also uh, partner with a local vinegar maker who also had their um, apples and uh, rhubarb that, was, that from, they used our fermenters for. So there's a lot of things that are actually going on in the in the cidery itself um, that are, are maybe not exciting to the, you know, to a visitor, but they're very exciting for us because what it means is in the in the early, early spring, we'll be able to bottle off our varieties or our cider varieties for um, from our 2020 harvest. So um, so it's a bit slow on the farm right now, but it's uh, but in reality, there's a lot of work going on. How about for you,
1: Nate? Yeah, we just uh, we just got done pressing uh, about a week ago. Um, we usually start pressing early October, late September. And we use our apples and then we partner with about eight other orchards. So this year was a little bit lower of a year of apples just because of the, the year. Um, and that was fine. But we did press until, yeah, like December 10th, I think. Um, and uh, all, yeah, all the ciders in the tanks, which is always a good feeling. Um, uh, today we're doing our last apple sale. Um, So most of the apple, the cooler should be pretty empty, except for cider for, or sorry, apples for the family and the, and the crew. Um, So it's getting kind of into shutdown mode. Um, But that being said, just like Megan um, mentioned, it's definitely not shut down in terms of what's happening in the tanks. Probably the the highest sort of energy output is right now is in all the work is being done by our yeast. You know, the yeast that we farm here, um, they're all, they're all working really hard right now. Um so yeah, that's 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 where the cider is. Um uh, we our cider can age up to two to three years. So we're actually bottling right now uh, 2019's um cider. Sorry, 2021, 2020, sorry, wrong year. 2020 cider. We're bottling some of that this week and next week. Um so we're always doing something. January tends to be December tends to be still a lot of work um mm. on the farm here. Uh but January is more of our slowdown time.
0: Yeah. Well, now might be a good time to um, give an overview, if only just for my sake, uh, but probably some listeners too. And like, could you give us maybe a brief overview of the cider making process? Like,
1: Um, Well, yeah, it's, I think the important thing to say is just like beer or yogurt or cheese, I mean, cheese maybe is the best example. There's a lot of different ways to make cheese, you know, (laughs) there's a big difference between Canberra and American cheese slice. Um, And that's because the process is so different. Um, So, you know, I I, I can't wait to hear what Megan says, because I know it's gonna be different than mine. I've I've been up to the Grove and hung out with Bob. And so it's a pretty similar situation. So you're going to hear pretty much the same story um, with a few variations, but it's important, I think, for people to know that you can make cider very differently. Uh, So for example, you can get concentrate from uh, across the ocean, bring it over, obviously, you know, dilute it, ferment it, with sugar up to twelve percent, drink in about two weeks, three weeks. Cut that down. Add sugar, uh, flavors, um, bubble it up, filter it, pasteurize. What you need to do to get sweet tasting and good. And bam, there you go. You have your Angry orchards, your Woodchucks, your strongbows. Um, So that's one way of making cider. I think the way you're going to hear Megan and I talk about it <laughs> is going to be very different. Um, the way we do it here at keepsake is we use only 100 local fruit we really feel like that's incredibly important because we want our cider to have voice and we want our cider to be uh its voice to be here and this time mm. and these people so um we bring in that fruit uh we press it on site we 100 percent are 100% pressing we don't bring any juice um not, not, none of this is a judgment on anybody this is just how we'd like to do it um so then we bring it in we like to know we do think it was really important what happens in the orchard is reflected in the final product so we try to be very picky about um, how the grapples are grown. We also think you have to be very picky about what apple you use. Um, a, a lot of the big guys, again, are just going to use whatever they get because they're cheap. We think that you, just like wine, particular fruit makes particular cider. And the cider that we love, you know, the ciders like Meg was talking about, I'm assuming you went to like Normandy and Brittany and France. Those ciders uh, are made of particular apples. My favorite ciders in the world are in Herefordshire or West County, Wales, um, Somerset, Brittany and Normandy, those are my favorite regions. And then I think the U.S. is a great possibility, um, but we have to use particular apples. We can't just use any apple. So we take those particular apples, we press them all right here. Um, where we're kind of weird is we don't uh, pitch anything. So we don't add any yeast. We don't add any nutrient. We don't add any sugar. We literally don't do anything but take the cider from the press and put it in the tank. Um, that's, you know, it depends on who you talk to. Uh, we like to call it spontaneous fermentation. Um, some people call it wild. I think it's kind of a misnomer. Um, it's just, we just like to use the native house yeast strain, whatever's floating in our cidery. Um, people like Mm -hmm. to be romantic and say it comes in on the apple or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, Of course there's yeast on the apple. There's also yeast on my head, yeast on my hands, (laughs) yeast on the equipment. There's (laughs) yeast everywhere. There's yeast. There's nowhere where there isn't yeast, (laughs) um, in our cidery. So they're just yeast. And we love to, to take advantage of that natural yeast and just let the cider become itself. Um, then, yeah, our cider ages. Uh, so, you, if you remember, if you might have remembered, I said that the, the big guys are going to, they're hoping to get their cider done in three weeks at the latest. You know, some of them may be a month, but most of the time it's two weeks to, to a month. Uh, we're happy to let our cider sit for, you know, the earliest six, eight months. But usually, I think our average is right around 12 to 18 months before we, um, we send it out into the world. And uh, the last quick thing is, to, you know, that's a big difference in different types of cider is how you package it right? You can force carbonate it, which is just like a pop, like Coca-Cola and put it in a can and sell it. Um, that's definitely a possible ability and good cider is made that way. Um, or you can put it in a bottle the same way, uh, or you can do like what we do, which is a um, bottle on, it's, it's called the ancestral methods. So you bottle it with, it still some residual sugar left in it, some natural sugars in the apples. Those continue to ferment and um, create a, its own bubble. So we'll do that either Charmat method in a tank and then bottle that as a medium style cider with a little bit of sweetness in it, or we'll put it in the, the bottle like it is, let it dry out in the bottle for a nice, natural, rustic, sparkly, sparkling cider. It'll still, all of our ciders are unfiltered, so we'll still have a little sediment. Um, but we think that's the best way. Uh, that's the cider we like best. So that's that's how we do it. We send it out and we sell it here at the tasting room and across the region.
0: This is killing me. It's only 940 and I really want a cider now. And I know I will really want one after this conversation's over. <laughs> Yeah. Megan, how, how, what is your process like at Kenosha Grove?
2: It's a, it's very similar. We're, Mm -hmm. we're targeting dry ciders. We love dry ciders and we love um, sparkling ciders. So we're following almost a similar process. One of the things that we like to do is incorporate a champagne yeast. That's um, something that we've used from the beginning. And um, I would call 2016 one of our our best years ever, even though we were not in commercial operation, we were still making cider on the farm and had wonderful success with using a champagne yeast. So we like that. Um, and have used that ever since. Uh, And then we are doing uh, carbonation um, prior to bottling. So our carbonation process is is a forced carbonation process that we're using um, as we bottle. We found that um, in the past, we've had some issues with respect to um, say bottle conditioning or other processes ending up with, um, you know, bottles that, went flat after a while or, uh, lost their caps. Um, so we, we wanted to really have quality control around our, um, our carbonation process, um, mostly for safety reasons and to make sure to maintain that, um, the longevity of our product and and knowing that our product is going out and going to be, um, as good as when we bottled it. Uh, cider is a living organism in a lot of ways. I find I go back and have, uh, bottles that we, um, you know, bottled in like say 2017 or 2018, they taste a lot different than they did um, initially. So they're they're still evolving in the bottle. So it's really neat that way. Um, and those longer aged uh, times that Nate was talking about are are really critical. They're building the the body and the taste profile of the ciders. I I'm not the cider maker. Uh, my 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 partner Bob is, and so he could speak to you at. Great lengths about our process, but uh, and I'm sure he and Nate have had a long have had long conversations about it. But um, yeah. I'm not the one necessarily getting my hands dirty, except during bottling when it does get very busy and um, it's all hands on deck.
0: Oh well, speaking of that, um, just reading about both of your farm, your orchards, there seems to be tons of family involvement, and I think that's really probably common on a lot of um, small family uh, businesses like this. So. How how does everyone get involved? You both have kids.
2: Sure, I can start with that. Um, harvest time is a big time for our family to really get involved. And then uh, bottling time is the other time when everybody mm. gets involved. So um, that harvest time season is uh, approximately six weeks long on our farm. And um, we're bringing in apples, like I say, from other orchards as well. So we're taking, taking, um, taking those apples in. What we like to do is rinse our fruit um, in big tubs. Uh, and then have those, uh, uh, those apples go to um, the grinder and then the press. Uh, we use a hydro- hydraulic press on our, um, on our farm. And then a a really neat um, grinder uh, that it's as fast as you can feed it apples. It'll turn it into the pomace that goes into the press. So um, our kids help a lot with essentially migrating the apples from along that process. Um, so, you know, getting them from the rinsing tubs, over to the pret, over to the um grinder and we often have a, a party on the farm to to invite other people to come out and help too and then um during the bottling process it's uh, you know it's washing every bottle it's getting them prepared for um for the cider and then uh labeling and my son who's 8 loves to Run the labeler. It's his favorite job. So as those uh, as those bottles come rolling down the line, he's the one pushing the button to apply the labels on each side.
1: Same ages, uh, eight and ten, girl um, mm-hmm. and boy, Fiona and Tristan. They are more. Uh, they, they. I'm trying. I'm, I'm. I'm playing the long game with them. Uh, I want them <laughs> to really working hard when they're fifteen. Um, so I kind of just give them options, and sometimes they jump in, sometimes they don't. Um, so every year it seems to change, just how they're feeling. This year, Mm -hmm. Fiona was really active in the tasting room. She loves that side of things, Uh, being at the cash register, helping to stock up, that kind of stuff. Um, She's incredibly strong. She can carry a whole case of 750 milliliter bottles. It's kind of fun to see her. It's almost as big as like like half her body. And she just walks around the corner with this little box, this big box. (laughs) Um, And then Tristan's more on the outside of things. He he likes to be in the orchard. So his big job this year was uh, helping with pest traps and checking and emptying and walking around and doing that kind of thing he's a funny guy he wakes up earlier than everybody else and he takes a walk so he also usually is kind of my uh, i'm not really an early riser i kind of go against that sort of farming uh trope um i i like to get up at seven or eight but he'll get up at like six and walk around and come back and report if you know if something's awry or something's really cool and you check out so he's kind of a scout so that's his job but uh yeah it's great having them around it's definitely one of the pluses of this lifestyle yeah
0: and just as an aside to listeners, uh, keepsake ciderie has a great video demonstrating kind of the the pressing process. And Megan, you talked a bit of how um, you have you know a party to help uh, get some things done at the busy times on the cider. And I can tell that both of your orchards really have some close community ties, and that's uh, very important to both of you. So yeah, what could you tell us a bit more about how you partner with other people or farms, organizations?
2: Yeah, I can I can lead off. We do a lot of um, partnering uh, with with other groups um, to help both to help us with um, some of the processes on the farm, but also to help these other farmers and and organizations. Um, Our farm was um, it's a historic property in that it was burned to the ground in the um, in the the cloquet fires basically in 1918. Um, So that was also the time that the Spanish flu was coming through the pandemic um and so it was a really really tough time uh in the northland um due to these these, these fires that came through and also the, the ongoing pandemic at the time um the the barn burned to the ground the house burned to the ground the family was able to move all their cattle down into a low plowed field on the property and um survive the fire that way and in fact the the um The father, the farmer, had gone into town the previous day to sell some firewood in Duluth, and he came back and thought he had lost his entire family and his farm. Um, The family survived. The Red Cross put up tents in the area for many, many of the farmers in the the area at the time, Uh, and they survived the winter in a Red Cross tent, and they rebuilt their barn first. Wow. Uh, and then, um, the house and, uh, the, the, the Youngstock building on the, on the farm as well. So all of our buildings are these, um, historic properties that were built after that fire really neat because they were, they were taking on some of the university of Minnesota, um, designs at the time, uh, that had a lot of mm-hmm. improvements. So, um, there was widespread use of concrete in the barn and things like that, that probably didn't exist prior to the fire, um, so our historical society and we we had a sort of a couple of several events to bring out you know our community members to see the farm open up all the buildings and talk a little bit about that event um and we're really lucky to have some of the descendants of the original farmers there there was a, they were a polish immigrant family who come through canada uh to um, settle in the area and they had recordings of their um and it was great grandmother or grandmother um Telling the story of of wow. going out into the field and surviving this fire, so it was oh really gosh. really interesting. Yeah, and and so that's been a really fun partnership with the historical society to sort of keep that story alive, um, especially because they had the um, the hundred year anniversary of that event uh, recently. So that was really, really neat. Uh, We partner with um, a little farm called the um, Clover Valley Farm uh, that's located up the North shore that makes spectacular flavored vinegars. Um, So they'll bring a bunch of their fruit um, and different, all sorts of different varieties of types of fruit, everything from rhubarb to um, uh, elderberries, to apples and they'll do um, small batches or large batches of of the basis for their vinegars um, at our our cidery. So that's really neat. Uh, We also have um, a group of farmers right now who are working on a really unique marketing outlet called the Recco Ring. I don't know if you guys have heard of Recco Rings but they're um, really big in Scandinavia. They're basically a a closed Facebook group based um, sales platform uh and uh we do a lot of our um sales outlets through this recovering um really really interesting neat model um really put takes off some of the pressure for farmers to be going to farmers markets all the time the problem with farmers markets for farmers is that they're spending all day literally all day packing a truck bringing it somewhere uncertain amounts of sales at these farmers markets, packing their truck up back with things they didn't sell and going back to the farm. Uh, This reco Ring model really bypasses a bunch of that um, and and, and does a a pre-order system uh, and then a quick meetup. So you're talking about an investment of a couple hours instead of all day every week. Um, So we're working on that as sort of a sales model with a bunch of community farmers in our area as well. Um, So those are, I guess, three examples we're always open to, um, to working with other groups too, um, on our farm.
0: And Nate, I know you're really involved with the local community too. And uh, you're, you're right smack dab in the, the Cannon Valley grown network of farmers too. So maybe you can talk a bit about that as you share how you, you get involved with the people around you.
1: Yeah. It's a big part of our business plan. And our lifestyle plan is to be collaborative and to be cooperative and to try to build connections with as many uh, people as we can, um, not just farmers. Uh, I love the fact that Megan, you know, it's like a historical society is, you know, maybe not the first thing a farm thinks about partnering with, but that's a wonderful thing to partner with and just building culture and building stories and building community. Um, that's just really important, obviously, to both of us uh, here today. Um, for us, you know, it's, it's it's. I feel, I, I've talked to other people across the country that have similar businesses and I've realized that, I feel kind of bad. How easy it is! Like, we're just so surrounded by so many great partners, so many farms, so many cheese makers, so many meat, cheese, maple syrup, honey, wool. You know, we do a fiber fest, which we should talk. If you want to jump in next year, Megan, we you know we have isolated, like fifteen to twenty fiber uh, producers and sheep and llama and alpaca and um, and it's like just amazing how many people are doing amazing things in this region uh, we're so lucky so i feel kind of bad how easy it is um but yeah we love partnering with these people we have our cheese fest you know where we have all these cheese makers we have we every, every time we're open every time our doors open you know we're selling <clears throat> i think five or six four or five different cheese makers different wool products um different meat products you know, maple syrups, honeys, um, lotions, uh, I mean, even like greeting cards right now, like people just are so creative in this area. So we love partnering with all those groups to, to give them another outlet, um, you know, for their sales, um, and such a mutually beneficial, um, relationship when we're all kind of working together to try to figure out a way to, I mean, the, I'm sorry, I might say it wrong. It was the reco rings. as I said, Megan? Yeah. I've never heard of them. I'm really looking forward to learning more about them. But I do believe really strongly in alternative uh, marketing, alternative uh, uh, sales. Um, it just as of right now, the infrastructure in the United States of America does not uh, does not is, is not built for small farms and small producers. So we have to be creative, and we have to work together, and we have to help build the market. You know, we have to help. Um, we can't fight over that little crumb like we were talking about before. Like. We have to like build out the market we have to figure out ways to creatively get to our customers and also tell our stories. Um, So it just, working together is I think incredibly important um, for all the reasons that you have a business uh, in in your small farm, especially, I guess. Um, So yeah, we partner with all those people. We love that. Of course we partner with SFA (laughs) and um, Minnesota farmers union. Uh, We, we routinely have meetings out here. Um, Land stewardship project, another one that we, you know, we love having out um, and using, like, utilizing the space. Um, we're big partner with. Uh, we, we, I mean, I'm a huge fan of water, um, and so I, we're part of the a local um, group that helps with the with with the Cannon River and all and the watershed around here. Um, they're here all often, uh, just sort of like nonprofits that do environmental work. I guess is what I'm trying to say. Um, but I think it's just it's it. it Yeah, it's a good thing. It's the right thing to do, but I have to say selfishly, it's also just so great for me and great for us. It's definitely a give and take back and forth. It's so, it definitely feels like these partnerships are um, life-giving and just really uh, healthy. Um, I don't feel like it's anything altruistic or altruistic that we're doing. Um, It's just the right way to run a business and it's the right way to live. And um, again, I, I feel like we're so lucky in this region. Like, It's very easy to partner up with awesome farmers, awesome producers, awesome nonprofits. Uh, Oh, I got to say, of course, we're lucky because we have, you know, two really great colleges right next to St. Olaf and Carlton. So, I mean, partnering with them is like just, I mean, I have a class that comes out and uh, again, it's just so life-giving to talk to these, the youth and all their great ideas and their questions. And yeah, I just, I love partnering I probably should just stop talking about it. I'll, I'll take the whole podcast about talking about how awesome partnering is.
0: <laughs> <laughs> nah, I mean, we're we're the farmer to farmer network. That's kind of all we talk about too sometimes. <laughs> well, this might be a really good time to um, talk a bit about how where you see maybe cider in Minnesota going, kind of how it is now, because I, I feel like our state is really well recognizes, um, the wealth of breweries that we have and cider maybe doesn't really get, um, talked about as much. And Nate, as we were talking before recording here, um, you're kind of attaching some numbers to how many cideries there are around here. So yeah, I'm just curious as, as people in the business, how, where you see opportunities to grow, um, what kind of track or trajectory you see things going right now?
1: Yeah, I have a lot of thoughts on this. <laughs> um, I I I think um, you know we're we're both part of a group um, called Minnesota Cider Guild. Uh, I think that's a f- first important step. Um, you're right. There, Minnesota, the Midwest. Although that wasn't for uh, 15 years ago, this was not a brewing world. Uh, Minnesota wasn't. Um, it's grown and it's grown. It's, it's vibrant. I love the, the the Minnesota craft beer scene here uh, as a big, big, big part of why I like Minnesota. Um, we are flyover country. That's all there is to say, you know, definitely on the national scene uh, when I'm at, you know, national meetings and I'm talking to people across the country, people are always surprised that, you know, their cider here. Um, And then they're always surprised how good it is, which that's, both of those are a little bit offensive to me.
0: (laughs) Yeah,
1: (laughs) I've had had conversations with people and and I'll, I'll say it for me again, I'm a big apple dork. I think it starts with the apple. For whatever reason, you know the 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 north the coasts think that they have these great apples and make great cider, and there's just no possibility that any of these other apples can be you know can can contribute to a cider. And so when I bring up apples like chestnut or keepsake, um, these two apples I think contribute to a cider in Minnesota. Very very often uh, they get kind of brushed off, um, even though the chestnut apple was found probably in 1908 in the original seeding the U of M did it took about 40 years for it to be released because it's such a weird little apple. Um, they couldn't figure out how to market it, but it was found in probably 1908. Um, so that's an old apple right there. And yeah, it doesn't get the respect. I mean, you hear all about the heirloom apples like the golden Russets and the gravensteins. And I like those apples. I'm not saying they're bad. Um, the new town pippins, but I think we have apples here that can make just as good ciders. Um, and as we start to get better and better about our growing as more, you know, orchards like our two orchards here on this, podcast put in more cider fruit more specific fruit remember i was talking about like specific apples make specific cider and those are ciders that really make the world-class beverages as we put more and more of that fruit in i think you're going to see minnesota wisconsin these this area grow even stronger as a cider region but as of right now we're definitely flyover country people don't really notice us um and that's maybe okay i guess we kind of all we all kind of like that too um i think we're we like to surprise people we like to uh to be that kind of underdog um But the truth is, you know, on a national level, no, we're not, you know, we're not, you know, when you have like a big cider tasting uh, or cider event in New York, they'll order ciders from all over the country. And I'm always interested, oh, there's not a single cider from this region. Why would that be? Because we're making world-class cider. Um, The answer to that is to continue doing what we're doing, planting cider Mm -hmm. fruit, honing our craft. We just have to make better cider. Um, And I love that. I love that challenge. Uh, And I bring it up with all my other Minnesota cider makers. We had to make the best cider in the world. Um, if we, cause we're gonna have to work harder, we're just going to have to work harder. We're not 50 miles in the Catskills outside of New York city, where we can just go into some hot bar, pour a little pet nat, and all of a sudden it's the buzz. We are going to have to work a lot harder on, uh, on what we do to get the recognition and to get the sales that come with that recognition. Um, all that being said, we're lucky because we have the base, we have a Minnesota market the consumers the people of minnesota that are so amazing they support local they support apples they support local beverages they come out uh they, they they they're creative too so they play music they contribute to our to to your business uh such a such a great market to be in so i am I, although i i think we have a tough you know, tough road to hoe. I think we are fully capable of doing that. I think we're in a position in a great market that'll support us in that direction. Um, I just think we have to continue to to make great cider, make the best cider in the world. We have to, we can't get distracted um, and try to chase trends. I'm not saying don't chase trends. Sometimes you got to be trendy. It's cool. But we have to also continue to make, hone our craft uh, and not get too distracted um, from the fact that the best way to, to grow a market is to make something delicious.
0: Mm. Megan, how do you, how
2: do you see things? Yeah, I see the cider um, industry, I guess, growing sort of on the, in the periphery, but I also see what's happening in Minnesota as a gap. And then that gap is opportunity. The gap that I see is that we have world-class um, Apple uh, genetic program at the University of Minnesota, world-class apple growing going on in Minnesota. You know the Honeycrisp apple, which I th- has got to be the best-selling apple <laughs> in the in the nation right now. That came out of the University of Minnesota program. So what I see is a ton of opportunity for the university to just step in here and be looking at varieties uh, that will do well in Minnesota and that will feed be a feedstock for the. Um, for the cider industry, uh, which I think um, will be growing in our communities as well, we're already seeing this in the Duluth area. Certainly, with two craft cideries um, popping up in the city within the last five years. Um, and what I what my focus is on is growing Minnesota's um, apple growers too. So what I really want to see, you know, my like long term vision here is that. Uh, our community up here in the Northland anyway, starts looking a lot more like the community over in Bayfield where they've got just orchards upon orchards and upon orchards Mm. all over their Hills. Um, and I I would love to see that here in our community too. So I see it as a growth opportunity. I see it as, um, some somewhat of a gap. Um, and I, but I do see, uh, the university really starting to step to, uh, looking at different varieties that can be planted out and, um, cultivated and propagated in our communities, um, we're part of an experimental program right now, actually planting some trees on our in our orchard that are part of that University of Minnesota program. So really excited to be part of that. Um, and like uh, Nate mentioned, I mean, the chestnut crab, which is the mainstay, I, I would say 70% of our new orchard is, is planted out in chestnut crab. We really love that apple. We think it makes a wonderful cider profile and we're excited to use it every single year that we get to use it. We're so excited. So um, I think there's a lot of... Misalignment, maybe, is the way to put it right now. Uh, you know, tons of focus on um, just selling apples, and it, it, that's great. We everybody loves apples; they're in every every kid's lunch everywhere across the nation, I'm sure. Um, but as as a cider feedstock, it means a, a different type of apple, and so we really want to see um, a little bit more focus on on building that profile for for that type of apple. Um,
1: yeah, I think too. Can I add on to that? Because I think it's a really great point. Um, what's up to us and i and I, the u of m is slowly but surely and there's some people that are really excited to work with you know um we were part of a grant where we planted out a bunch of cider specific fruit to see how it does here plus we got a, a another apple that was just it's an ugly apple that minnesota kind of passed on um called with a you know 1735 is the sexy name it has right now but that we're looking into uh with minnesota but this is a big change because in five, 10 years ago, they didn't want to have anything to do with cider fruit. Um, I'm so happy to be working with them and they're working with all of us, uh, as as Megan's saying. U of M is definitely a great possibility. This though kind of comes into what I was saying earlier though about like how we, as cideries, we have to make the best cider. We also have to start talking about economics. Um, I'm an apple grower first and it's only reason I grow Chiseled Jersey. Um, or Bolmers Norman, or Yarlington Mills is going to make cider, and that I make it work for me and my margins. But right now, f- most cideries, you know, we're representing a very small sector of cider right today on this call. We're we're both farm based cideries mm-hmm. that may use only our apples and local apples, so we pay a lot for our apples. <laughs> I'm sure Megan does too. Like compared mm-hmm. to like some of my competitors in the state, and they're my friends, so I use we competitors just like I would. I got, I'm from a big family; I got lots of sisters and brothers. Just like my sisters and brothers, we compete. You know, I want to, I want to beat them at card games. They, you know, that kind of thing. But we're still, we're still close. I make sure that's very clear. I really love the cider scene. But they're going to buy juice from like Oregon or Washington or Michigan, and they're going to pay a fraction of what I'm paying, right? So mm-hmm. until those cider scene in Minnesota wants to invest in these growers, they're going to continue growing Honeycrisp. They're going to continue growing Sweet Tango. They're going to grow First Kiss. They're going to go Triumph because all those apples will make them way more money than it will to make, to work with a cidery like me. Um, So we have to talk about that too, the cider industry. It's like, if we want to grow our fruit stock, we have to invest in it. Whether that means we're growing it more ourselves or we're buying fruit or finding uh, relationships with orchards that work for them, uh, or we're paying more for our apples uh, and we're using more. That's just a a hard fact. Uh, We happen to live in a state that has the highest average per bushel payment because we love apples and people are willing to pay. $3 Three dollars a pound for their Honeycrisp, um, so farmers aren't as interested in working with us yet. So it's it's a, I totally agree with you. It's definitely a gap that we need to we're, we're working on. I mean, we're all working on, but it's interesting because it comes down to economics and, uh, you know, our cideries are willing to invest in Minnesota fruit.
0: Well, it seems like there's also I I, I think that issue exists. or that challenge exists quite a bit in different fields of agriculture too. It's kind of bringing to mind um, some of like the craft brewing uh, problems about like, okay, local hops, local grains, and employing all of those too.
2: There's a lot of parallels here with uh, the grain industry, certainly. I mean, you look at Minnesota's grain growing state. uh, It's also an apple growing state. Um, Wisconsin used to be the biggest hops region um, in the nation. Um, so what happened to those industries, right? And what's really happened is that uh, you know the 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 premium is on corn and soy and those monocultures, right? And that is that's an issue. I mean, that is it's not just an economics issue, it's also an environmental issue. Um so until we sort of as a society embrace diversification in our in our agriculture, um, then there won't be any incentive to move away from or try to bring back, things like hop growing or things like, um, cider cider, apple growing, like those, those things won't be brought back until we, um, de-incentivize the monoculture, you know, industry that we have going on right now at a, at a very high level.
0: Yeah. That's a big challenge to chew on for sure.
2: Um, grand challenge, certainly a grand challenge.
0: If you want to talk more about challenges, I am curious, um, given how difficult of a year this was with the drought for most farmers, um how did that impact your operations in the orchard and are there other challenges that you're working through on farm this year and how are you tackling those
2: Sure I'll talk about two challenges that we have on our farm um one is particular to the drought uh we um ex- have been experiencing this drought it wasn't just this past summer it started the summer before we've been in drought now for over a year Um, And what we see is that every single year that we go out and we expand our orchard by um, we're hand grafting from our existing orchard. We, that's a philosophy that we have on the farm is that the heirloom orchard that we have uh, moved here and and found is those are proven winners. Um, They are, they're disease resistant. They are climate resistant. uh, They are resilient um, trees. And so we graft um, all of our, trees um, onto rootstock that we get from a nursery and we put them out into the orchard to expand our operation. Uh, Every year we experience loss. This past summer was a terrible loss. I think we lost almost 60% of um, of the grafted trees that we planted. What that means for our farm, as far as tackling that challenge, potentially uh, means going to a drip irrigation system, which is expensive. Um, and it's uh, not something that we've ever had to think about before. But I suspect that that, be, that may be something we're moving toward um, implementing on our farm. Uh, we're working with the local county on uh, where we just became an egg Minnesota egg Water Quality Certified Farm, which is really exciting. It opens up some opportunity for us, both on the... Um, on our uh sheep operation as far as uh watering goes but also you know potentially starting to look at a drip irrigation system to help our graphs take in years years that are challenging like this Mm -hmm. so that's one of the challenges we face and the second is um and i'll talk a little bit about the reco ring again um as a solution here but the other challenge is taking something that's a specialty product and um and having to and having to sell it right this is something that is nobody's ever seen or heard of before almost it's it seems like a novel product um so we want our ciders to be out in um the types of restaurants that we admire um the problem with a restaurant sale is that they need to mark it up so much that it becomes almost um expensive to the point of people not wanting to buy it uh we have uh our cider on sale at local shelves in um in bottle shops and they're so big that it becomes flooded out and people can't notice it. What we like about a recoring model is that we're capturing um, a, a group of community members and people who are really invested in um, local foods. And so they want their meat grown locally. They want their vegetables grown locally. They want to buy from uh, farmers that are in the community. And so what's really neat about the record ring model is that we're, um, we're building that community and that's a great outlet for us. We can sell cider um, to that group at the drop of a hat, we're selling it, um, direct to direct to the customer. So we don't have to worry about our, um, our cider being priced at an astronomically high level. Um, so it's, it's helping to alleviate that, that marketing system. So, um, so those are challenges that we certainly face and have to think about all the time. Um, and it's something that, you know, somebody who's growing corn and soy, for example, uh, they don't need to think about that. They just go to their local cooperative and, and make a sale uh, or they write a contract to have a sale in place. Um, that's not that's not a, a model that we can take advantage of. So we have to think about marketing and sales all the time on our farm.
0: Are these reco rings um, fairly informal? Is there like a any type of organization um outside of your area. I'm really interested in this. I would like to explore to see if there's something in the Twin Cities. Yeah, um,
2: <laughs> there's hundreds of these record rings all over Scandinavia. It's, um, it was invented mm-hmm. in 2013 by a, a fellow named Thomas Snellman, who was a farmer. Um, and uh, they've really taken off across Europe. Um, we've got a couple in Wisconsin. We've got our Twin Ports one here in the Northland. Um, there's a couple on the coast, I believe, but what we really want to see is that recoring model grow, um, in the same way that like a CSA model, uh, for, for community farms has as well. So we're trying to grow that out as well.
0: And Nate, you, you all do, a, a kind of a CSA model for your cider too.
1: Yeah. The cider club is great. Uh, it definitely, was a holdover from being a CSA farmer. I mean, that's exactly mm-hmm. why we did it. Um, our cider clubs were are Probably gonna change up the structure of it, but because it is too much like a CSA and it's kind of weird for people in the in the beverage world. Um, but yeah, we love it. We love our cider club members because a lot of them have been around with us for six, seven years. Um, we have a nice group. Uh it's uh it's just like it's, it's what a CSA is, right? It's a sustainable, like we know we can count on this and it's upfront money because you know, a lot of our costs are upfront. You know, I I spent a lot of money and I don't, you know. Two, you know, I, got, I got a side right now that're working on that's going to probably hit two and a half years before i release it and that you know that's a lot of upfront costs that you don't want to realize for a long time um so yeah it's helpful to have a cider club and I, I like the relationship you know these are people that i get to know um we like to you know a cider club member comes in we like to like hey just a second try this new thing we're working on or what do you think of this stuff and just getting that input and that relationship that it builds uh, i really appreciate um mm-hmm. yeah it's a good thing
0: I want to give you a chance too to talk about, um, the drought or, you know, other environmental factors or on farm things that you've been dealing with and, and how you're tackling those challenges.
1: Right. Yeah. I mean, there's always challenges, right? That's the thing. If you're mm-hmm. you wanting to be a farmer, you know, it's just like you're farming and cider making, uh, my, you know, mentor of mine, who's one of the best cider makers in the world. He, he one time said to me, like, if you don't love the challenge that this type of cider making presents, you need to change, like now. Like, don't keep doing this. <laughs> if you're if you're looking for like a ch- challengeless, pro- like troubleless, you know, easy, easy peasy lemon squeezy type thing, you're doing the wrong thing. Um, but uh, but yeah, the you know, obviously droughts aren't fun. Uh, we are on drip, but I don't. Uh, sometimes I don't, I'm not quite even sure if it's working because the mice are chewing it. And I'm checking lines every ten. It just takes a lot more of my time. Like last year, I was spending um probably eight hours a week just like fixing stuff and watering stuff and running the irrigation system. That's a lot of work. Um, it's hard to tell trees are like humans where things are cumulative, right? So I don't know right now are, we're doing well in the orchard, but I don't know if this is the stress of this, like, like Megan's saying this last year and a half, two years of, of not very fun weather for them is going to culminate in some real serious issues in the next year or two. But, um, I think we're facing that challenge as well as we can. Um, I would just kind of, back up with megan saying honestly if i think about the challenges uh for some reason the farming challenges although are heartbreaking when you lose i've been in the same position we lose tons of trees or you know last year we lost 70 percent of the crop to a light late frost um Mm -hmm. i can't do much about that stuff Uh, i can do my best and i do my best and i think we grow great apples here but you know um i feel like it's just part of farming for me uh the marketing part is the hard one i mean it's just so difficult to be a small producer in a big producer world, you know, where we um, routinely we go up with our cider and it's, you know, it's not packaged in the way it's supposed to be packaged. It's supposed to be a nine 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 six pack. And I'm like, well, then I need to stop buying apples from the soda. I need to water down my cider. I need to pay my crew less. I need to age my cider less and I need to add a bunch of flavors. That's how you do that. And people are like, oh, don't do that. I was like, okay, well, here's my bottle of cider for 1299. Like that's how it works. And they just, people just don't get it. I mean, there are, I'm not saying there are, there are some great partners, some great stores uh, all over the state of Minnesota that do get it, and the great restaurants that do get it, but those stores are few and far between. Um, it's a really tough job to sell um, this style of cider, just like it's hard to sell the style of beer and style of wine where you're just doing these long age and these these this, uh, you know don't take any shortcuts. Uh, local for produce, local grains, local whatever it is, it's just harder. And it's much easier in this world to sell uh, you know an eighteen pack uh of 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 course light and that's just the reality of it um but that makes it difficult so i uh i for us it's also not like the record ring which i'd be interested in trying but for us the tasting room you know it's a huge part of how we approach that challenge we say okay it's hard to sell cider um right next to someone that's saying the same words but doing something different and making it way cheap but when you're at keepsake cidery on the farm it's not hard people get it people understand they look around and say okay this makes sense and um, so that's a key, key way we approach that challenge. Um, but yeah, I think that's, you know, obviously farming is always a challenge and I, I, I agree that's, you know, that's, but that's part of it, I guess. But yeah, I think it's really difficult to market and sell in this, in society that definitely is built for the big guys.
0: Yeah. I appreciate you both sharing all those, cause I know it's not the, the easiest topics to talk about, but I think it's so valuable for other folks to hear. Um. And hear other people with the same, you know, struggles that they have and also percolating some ideas too, because yeah, we can't really just let this be how it is. <laughs> we want, we want y'all to succeed. Amen. Well, I think we'll probably wrap it up here. Um, maybe on a happier note. What do you love about the work you do? Um, why do you do this?
2: I think it's sort of a constellation of um reasons one is we're leveraging bobs real skill set in insider craft i mean honestly um you know again coming from that background of being a brewer for so long and having an understanding of how this process works uh to be able to come to a farm like this that has an existing orchard and make something just really wonderful that we want to share it's a big reason that we're doing what we're doing um I would say that the family aspect um, sort of raising our kids um, in a place where they are, they can see a lot of beauty, but a lot also a lot of hard work and also, um, you know, a, a real process from sort of beginning to end that that's, it's a project project-based learning in, in some ways. Um, so that is a real sort of value that we carry through and, um, I think the aspect of bringing something to our community that is new and different and thinks about, um, maybe the world a little differently than, um, than, than we thought about things in a lot of years. I mean, we're coming to this property that was a dairy farm, um, when this community was a community of growers and dairy farms. Um, and it's not that now. And, uh, I think in some ways we've sort of lost our appreciation for what we can do with the the land. Um, obviously our, our terrain is a lot different than Southern Minnesota, um, but that doesn't mean we, we can't create here. Um, so I think adding that sort of element to our community is a big part of what we're doing. Um, and um, we want to be sustainable. <laughs> what that means in you know when you boil it down um it means that we're we are sort of bringing in these eco- en- environmental aspects um to the work that we do but it means that we need to be economically sustainable too as a family and and keep moving in that in that right direction um we're new enough now that we you know are sort of just coming into terms with what um an initial investment in a business like this means versus what an ongoing operational cost means um so we're we're sort of making that transition too, but that's a huge part of, of the package as well as is, is making this sustainable in the sense that um, it's economically sustainable um, and demonstrating that to the community as well. Um, so I don't know. Those are a bunch of reasons that we're doing what we're doing. Uh, certainly there are times when we ask ourselves why we're doing what we're doing, uh, and but I think that's probably, uh, and I think the, the pandemic has... Has made it force a lot of people to ask that question of what, why they're doing what they're doing, and so reflecting back on it now, um, I I see a lot of benefits to what we're doing, um, and I continue to see that. So,
1: yeah, I think um, my favorite things. Well, first of all, um, I think it's enjoy this this conversation with both you and Meg. I think we're very complimentary and uh, a good good because as as you're talking, I was going to start talking about almost the exact same thing. Like, yes, exactly. and that, that's such a good feeling um, because sometimes you do sort of feel like there's a, a, that the challenges are high, but to know there's other people out there in the same boat um, feels great. And I think sustainability is you know a, a paramount. You know it's kind of a a, a word we use a lot, but um, obviously economic sustainability and environmental ecological sustainability are really important. And and one thing that we've been really talking about a lot lately is also emotional sustainability and how this is an awesome vocation, and an awesome lifestyle, and we love it, but it can be really difficult emotionally. Um, and we, you know, I just want to throw it out there. You know, if you ever need someone to chat with or someone to have a cider with, uh, I'm there for you. Um, but we, we I think that what's been fun for me is realizing that we are starting to really find that sustainability on those three things. Um, mm-hmm. you know, we always felt very ecologically sustainable doing, you know, which is such a great way to farm i think um and i love trees and they do a great job for the earth um economically you know we're still getting there but i think we're feeling really good about that you know diversifying the income and figuring out how we can make it work much like megan's talking about that feels really good that we're getting to that place Um, because one of our mission was like to make a small farm a different land use uh work um emotionally we're starting to approach that and feel I feel really good about that going forward. I feel just I just feels good to know these challenges are surmountable. Sometimes they felt like they weren't honestly, right? Sometimes it felt like we're just crazy. (laughs) What are we doing? Um, But they are and that's feeling really good lately, to know that that we do we are actually succeeding in in some ways. Um, And I mean, I I like that challenge. I like that I feeling of like, um, you know, some of the land use issues that Megan brought up earlier. Um, the economic issues that, you know, were were brought up earlier, you know, I can't, if I have a bad year, I don't get to like ask for a subsidy. I don't get to ask for a handout, which I'm not saying it's a bad thing, a good thing for other people. Um, that That's how it's worked for them. Great. And though some of them are my friends. I'm I'm glad that they are being taken care of, but we don't mm-hmm. have that here. Um, and that's a big time reality when, you know, my neighbors do. Uh, so then I have to figure out, and it's been great to feel like, okay, that's a big time challenge, but we're starting to figure out these creative ways you know, whether it be reco rings or direct sales in the tasting rooms with cheese fests and music. um, That's just been feeling really, really good to me. And then the final thing that feels really good to me is very simple. Um, I love the fact that uh, all that hard work, growing the apples, pressing the apples, waiting for it to make cider, bottling it, trying to bring something that is really worthwhile to someone. I love seeing, uh, you know, I, I, I saw my friend just sitting down at the tasting room across the table from her father and they're just eating a cheese plate, local cheeses and sharing a bottle of cider. And they're both like the smiles on their faces, the laughter. I could like I'd like stop staring because I think it was kind of getting creepy, but I was just like, this is just so beautiful. Like it was just so beautiful to see that, you know, when you see, we, we get multiple generations here where grandma's chasing the kids around over by the horses, mom and dad are exhausted, but they're having a cider and they're just like, you know, the things that people have been saying lately to me, like, oh, this place is making me feel peace. To be able to offer that to my community, to be able to pour that cider, to serve that cheese, just the circle there. You just feel like, OK, we're, we're taking care of the local environment, taking care of the local economy. We're also like taking care of these people and making them happy. That is, I can't put words to that feeling. So that's probably my favorite part of it.
0: Thank you both so much for doing this with us. I feel like I could talk to you both all day. This is, this really is the stuff. So thank you.
1: We got to meet up over ciders.
0: Yes, I would love to. Yes. Dirt Rich is produced by the Sustainable Farming Association. We believe that agriculture done well heals. For more resources or to tap into the Farmer to Farmer Network, visit us at sfa-mn.org.